Kia and welcome to Balance X Future Farming, where we chat with experts about some of the big issues impacting farmers and growers in Aotearoa and break down the science behind it to figure out the practical solutions. I'm your host, Tangaroa Walker from Farm for Life, a Kiwi farmer based down in Southland, and I'm really excited to learn too. It's great to have you listening. Looking forward to learning heaps over the first season. Today we're talking about greenhouse gases. You probably know a little bit about the topic already, but now we're looking at it through a scientific lens so farmers like me can understand what opportunities there are for us on farm. Overall, I can't wait to figure out what a greenhouse gas is. What actually makes up a greenhouse gas emission? It's definitely something that I've struggled to understand, but fortunately we have two experts on board today. The first one being Harry Clark and Warwick Caddo. Harry is the director of New Zealand's Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Research Centre. He developed the current New Zealand mythology for estimating enteric methane emissions and is recognised internationally for his science leadership in this domain. Next up we've got Warwick Caddo. Warwick is a science strategy manager at Balance Agri-Nutrients. He is also a board member of FERT Research and co-chairs its technical committee. Warwick has co-authored numerous scientific papers and been instrumental in the development of fertiliser industry policy for over 25 years. So let's pull up your socks, slap on those gumboots and jump right into it. Well, kia ora Harry and kia ora Warwick. Welcome to the podcast. Awesome to be able to pick your brains. Um, I wish I had the opportunity to talk with you guys as I entered the industry some 10 to 12 years ago. Um, so hopefully this sort of knowledge and educational uh, podcast is going to go a long way for the young guys coming through, as well as the old guys that are uh, currently in the gumboots at the moment. So, you know, before we start, can I just get a bit of an intro, Harry, um, as to where you are and what your business is with greenhouse gas emissions? Oh, thanks. Kia ora, Tangara. I'm currently the director of something sort of difficultly named the New Zealand Agricultural Greenhouse Gas Research Centre. We are a funder of research into agricultural greenhouse gas mitigations. My own background is that I'm an animal production scientist and I've worked for the last 20 years on, on looking at ways to reducing methane emissions from ruminant animals. I'm also one of New Zealand's uh, seven climate change commissioners. So I'm heavily involved in the report that was recently released advising the government on greenhouse gas emissions budgets across the whole of the economy. Awesome. As for you, Warwick, um, you know, what's your history and background behind uh, getting on board with greenhouse gas emissions and, and trying to mitigate them? Probably importantly, I come from a farming family in Central Southland, not far away from where you are. So, Wicked. But I'm based in Tauranga now and surrounded with a lot of horticulture, of course, kiwifruits booming around here. So you do get a wee bit of a different lens, but you've got Waikato just over the Kaimais. But my day job, I work for Balance Agri-Nutrients in the science strategy space. But what that essentially means is I have to spend a lot of time thinking about the future. Oh, that's awesome, guys. Well, um, yeah, we're really looking forward to this podcast. So let's crack straight on into it. For those of us that are currently farming, you know, slapping on plenty of fertiliser, hoping it grows a, a tonne of grass so we can obviously turn that into milk. What is greenhouse gases? What are they? I guess one of the important things to understand is the energy that comes to the planet comes from the sunshine. These greenhouse gases don't block the energy on the way into the planet 
They block it when it bounces back, and that's why it creates the effect. They, I think that's quite important to understand why they work. It's also important, you know, so I think the analogy, it's like a blanket. Basically, it's a blanket that lets the sun's radiation through, but then traps that when it bounces back off the surface of the earth. But I think it's also important to understand that without those greenhouse gases, we wouldn't be here because there is a natural level of greenhouse gases coming from natural processes that have occurred in on the earth for billions of years. And so those greenhouse gases are essential to life on this planet. I think the estimates are we'd be something like minus 30 degrees mm. without the greenhouse gases. So we absolutely need them. The issue is that until probably the Industrial Revolution, they were relatively stable in the atmosphere. They have changed due to natural processes and natural changes in the radiation coming from the sun. But certainly for the last 800,000 years, the concentrations we have in the atmosphere now are higher than they've ever been. And they have been driven literally over the last 200 years by human activities. And it's the speed at which they are changing, which is incredibly important. For example, carbon dioxide, pre-industrial times was at a level of around about 280 parts per million in the atmosphere. It's now 405, 410, depending on where you are. The concentrations of methane have gone up by 50% in the last 100 years. So it's that human activities are increasing them and they're increasing at a very, very rapid rate. If they're increasing very slowly, you know, our ecosystems can adapt because ecosystems adapt slowly, but they can't adapt very rapidly to this. And when we talk about the change in temperature, one degree doesn't seem very much, but it can make huge differences into how you farm, where plants arise. And it's not just agriculture. If you look at aquaculture, change in ocean temperatures, change where fish species are in Northern Europe. Cod used to be a very, very prominent fish around, say, the United Kingdom waters. Now, overfishing took some of it out, but now the temperature change in the ocean is moving the natural habitats of that species much further north. And so you're getting those changes in the ocean. They can move, the fish move somewhere else. On land, it might be quite different. Um, you know, we'll see plants having different habitats. And even when in some areas where the warming is extreme, you find that the animal species we're using, particularly farmed animals, will start to suffer things like heat stress. And you might have to think, well, are those animals that have been used to a temperate climate, can we continue using them if the climate changes dramatically? One degree doesn't sound much. It isn't just the average temperature that changes. It's things like the extremes in temperature. So we might get more droughts. We might get less frost, but more runs of hot days. The Royal Society did an examination a couple of years ago. For many of us, we get about 15 days above 25 degrees. If we don't do something about climate change in 100 years, we could get something like 100 days above 25 degrees. And so it will make a considerable difference if we don't address the problem. And have we noticed those sorts of patterns starting to rise now in the last uh, 100 years? Have we? Is there much proof of this happening already? Because down here in Southland, it rains for like 
a hundred days in a row. Yes, yeah, this year. Well, that, yeah, I have to. Where I am, it's rained seemingly for about a hundred days in a row. The New Zealand climate record isn't a particularly long record, but the evidence is that the New Zealand warming is around about one point one degrees over the last uh, 150 years. We do have evidence that drought frequency is increasing. With respect to rain, it's very interesting is that the forecasts, and we can only use models to do this, the forecasts are that the wetter areas in New Zealand may actually end up getting wetter and the drier areas will get drier. So the areas on on the east coast, you know, from Canterbury upwards, right right up through, and then in, in Northland, it could get drier and considerably warmer. If we go to Southland and the West, and this is very generalised, it would get slightly warmer, but it could also get wetter. And both of those things can work in, you know, it'd be nice perhaps in Southland if it's slightly warmer, you might get more grass growth, you might have opportunities for different crops. But if it gets wetter, the utilisation of those might be more difficult in the winter, etc. So there will be pluses and minuses, I think, on this. So you know, the temperature change can provide opportunities in agriculture for perhaps different crops, but it may provide challenges for our current farming systems. That's certainly a big challenge for you in the deep south. Like one of the challenges in New Zealand is that a lot of the conversation is about things getting drier. And yet, as you've noted, for the deep south, it's actually getting wetter in the wintertime. And as you know, the issues of wintering in the deep south, that could be quite a specific problem that the West Coast and the Lower South Island faces to, to make sure that we understand the effects aren't universal across the country. We're seeing that in the Waikato the last few years with how dry it's getting and the ability to maintain ryegrass in the swards. You know, the temperatures are getting so warm in the summer we had a grasslands conference early in the year and one of the key questions was, does ryegrass have a future in Northland and the Waikato because of these warm summer periods? So as Harry said, it's not the one degree, it's some of this variation that's critically important. And if you think of horticulture, if you get a reduction in frost days, a lot of horticultural crops need vernalisation, they need chilling. If you don't get the chilling, the um the bud burst and the flowering isn't concentrated. So some of these things aren't just animal related. They are quite important for horticultural phenology as well. Yeah, we've definitely noticed a trend. Our winters are about maybe one to two weeks later and farmers are starting to milk into June down here in Southland and are pushing calving out a little bit further and and, um, noticing that grass is holding on a little bit longer uh, in the autumn as well. So we definitely are moving with the weather patterns. What are your thoughts on, uh, you know, obviously our food baskets are moving uh, around New Zealand. Uh, Does that mean that we need to move more people down to Southland so we can milk more cows or...? Well, as I said, I think you'll end up with, you know, there will be opportunities and challenges. And I think we will see businesses taking the opportunities as well as existing businesses having to adapt their systems to the new norm. And I I think, as Warwick emphasized, there will be benefits. For example, you may have a longer growing season, but if it gets wetter in the winter, utilising that is going to be difficult. So it could still happen, but maybe you need to think of different ways of wintering. It may be that you have to have a different approach to wintering so that you are taking advantage of the good things that come with climate change, perhaps more grass where you are, but also say, well, how do I adapt my system 
to those those negative aspects that whereby current system may not actually be applicable anymore. One of the things that comes with the, that warming climate in these farm systems is is weeds. Some of the insect pests, if it's warmer, they can get through. Like in the deep south, you know, the Argentine stem weevil only gets through one life cycle per year. In the northern North Island, it gets through two life cycles because it's warmer. So some of these pest challenges, I think hairy humidity is expected to go up. So fungal challenges, if you're an arable or horticultural grower, may mean pesticide use or disease challenge goes up. Facial eczema will be broader. And I guess the more important thing is around water supply. So in Harry, in your climate change document, one of the forecasts is, I think, about 2,000 hectares per year migrating into horticultural use. You know, the temperatures might be suitable for it, but will water availability be there to actually make that happen? And I think that's one of the themes that we need to get better insight in terms of some of these things is around water supply. But people think of change in terms of moving from dairy to sheep and beef or sheep and beef to forestry or some other change. But I think the changes within the farm system are probably so, you know, dairy systems going to different types of wintering or feeding regimes is probably what we may see more of rather than actually people exiting industries. I absolutely agree. I I don't think we're likely to see, certainly in the short term, any massive exit out of dairy, for example. What I think we will see is exactly what you're stating, is that people will adapt their systems to meet the environment that they're farming in. And that's always occurred. You know, (laughs) there's nothing new. It just maybe have to occur somewhat quicker. Awesome, Harry. So just before we start moving on to some of the some of the real problems that we've got with greenhouse gases, do one of you guys want to just talk about the cycle of greenhouse gases? Now, we've talked about they being like a blanket and, and capturing the heat before it exits uh, the ozone there. But can we just talk about it and make it as simple as possible for those that uh, wouldn't have a clue about what greenhouse gases do and how they break down? One of the most common confusions you get with farming and public interest is the difference between carbon neutrality and greenhouse gas neutrality. And farmers say, look, I'm capturing carbon in my grass when I grow it all the time. You know, I must be carbon neutral. Well, in fact, they are. The problem is, is that the grass captures CO2 from the atmosphere, but then the animal digests it and belches it out as CH4 or methane. So it's still the one carbon molecule that's going through, but the issue is is that methane is, I think, 24 times as potent as the CO2 the grass absorbed, and that's the issue is that the carbon's transformed into a different greenhouse gas that's more potent. People do get mixed up between carbon neutral, i.e. carbon atoms going in and out, and greenhouse gas neutral because what we're doing in the atmosphere, particularly with animal cycling of growing grass, eating it and producing a product, carbon is is conserved, but we're taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and a small amount of methane is put back. So it isn't neutral in terms of greenhouse gases. And I think the, the other thing, Warwick, that goes alongside this is that some confusion over the differences between 
carbon dioxide, which is a gas that stays in the atmosphere for many, many years, actually, you know, centuries to thousands of years, and a gas like methane, which is breaks down quite quickly. So the only way you take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere naturally is it gets absorbed in the ocean, it gets absorbed in rocks, and these can be very long-term stores. But that's a very, very slow process. Whereas something like methane, has a very rapid reaction in the atmosphere by these things called hydroxyl radicals. And it breaks down within about 12 years. Although methane has this strong short-term effect, it doesn't have a strong long-term effect. So that when we're thinking about how to control these influences on the temperature with carbon dioxide, because it lasts potentially thousands of years, the only way we can stop additional warming coming from carbon dioxide is to stop carbon dioxide emissions. With methane, because it breaks down so rapidly, after a few years, you may emit a methane molecule, but another methane molecule is breaking down from that you emitted, you know, say 12 to 20 years ago. So that when we're thinking about how we can reduce these gases and what their effect on the temperature will be. We know that whatever we do to stop global warming, we need to stop emissions of carbon dioxide. They, for any carbon dioxide we emit, we have to absorb something, and that could be in a tree. With methane, it's slightly different. We don't have to stop emissions of methane. If we can reduce them to some extent, we can then actually stop the contribution to warming coming from methane. We don't stop warming coming from methane, but we stop additional warming coming from methane. And that's why we have these different targets in, in the, you know, the zero carbon bill. It's net zero for long-lived gases. And, and nitrous oxide, over a period of a couple of hundred years, behaves exactly the same as carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in terms of warming. Whereas methane, we don't have to get it to this net zero. We need to reduce it because it does cause warming. But it's this different behaviour in the atmosphere that allows us to have a different target for methane and still make a, a contribution. So there's always been this fear. Do we have to stop methane emissions? No, we have to reduce them as much as we possibly can. But to control global warming, we do have to get carbon dioxide down to net zero. So, Harry, I'm going to ask the next question that logically comes from that is, New Zealand's only, what, 0.3% of global emissions? So given you're on the Climate Commission, why the obvious question is why should we do anything? You know, why does it matter? If you actually take a physical approach to it, it doesn't matter. New Zealand produces 0.17 or something percent of the global emissions. So, OK, it doesn't matter if we stop or start emitting for the global temperature. But two things. About 30 percent of the emissions come from small nations like ourselves. So you can always say, oh, well, it's no good if we don't do it. But what happens if all those others say we don't do it? There's 30 percent of global emissions that wouldn't get touched. This idea of only the big emitters have to do something and, and all those with a little slice shouldn't do anything is not really part of what you would term a global effort. We all need to make that effort. And I think a really important issue is that whether we emit or not won't change the climate, but what others do will change the climate and we will suffer from that climate. And so, yeah. you know, OK, we don't do anything. Well, 
what message does that send to others? Because if we don't do anything, and you've already seen that kind of language, well, we're not doing anything until someone else does something. If everyone takes that approach, we will still have to suffer the consequences of a changed climate. So it's in our national interest to you know, be part of any global effort. And I think you know, countries like New Zealand punch above their weight internationally. And you know, the example of small countries wanting to take action does mean that there is no excuse for others to take action. It is a seductive argument to say, oh, well, it, we don't matter. But I said, everyone else can make that argument as well. And the, the planet will not particularly appreciate us for that uh, line of reasoning, I think. It was interesting in the uh, US election campaign last year, Joe Biden, as part of his campaigning, talked about targeting taxing carbon flows between borders, you know, and that's the first bullet in the potential becoming a trade barrier. So that's the one thing we do, I think we have to act on. A, I think it's the morally right thing to address our emissions, but B, uh, we don't want it. But given we're such an important trading nation, it's important that we don't expose ourselves to that risk. Yeah, absolutely, Warwick. I think that in many ways, we will not have a choice because the people we supply to will actually be demanding that we supply products that can be verified as being low emitting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, speaking on behalf of quite a lot of farmers, we are very worried that if we start falling within the rules and regulations around emissions, we are going to increase the price of our products, meaning that uh, we, we obviously have to produce a, a little bit less, but uh, who's going to be filling that protein hole around the world to feed mouths and, um, you know, what's that going to look like? So, that's another podcast in itself, guys. <laughs> but uh, just bringing things back to the farm, what are some of the biggest things on farm that, that I suppose are emitting uh, greenhouse gases for us dairy farmers? So there's a couple of things. You know, there's one is the technologies that can modify the absolute emissions from the animals. The other is the efficiency of production systems. In most farms historically have been improving their emissions per kilogram of red meat or milk by about, let's say, 1% per annum per year. So that's a big productivity gain. And so the most important thing is actually carrying on that good work, improving on-farm efficiency. And to give you some simple things that you can do, one is improve the lifetime productivity of the herd. I think the average, I think, is roughly about four and a half lactations per cow. You know, can you get a an extra year, can you get improve that uh, by better heifer management or getting the heifers growing them out better? The in, in calf rate, you know, improving that, things like that can make quite a difference. Some farms that I run into now, the um, instead of bobbing their calves, kept retaining those and feeding them through to the beef industry. So suddenly you don't have a beef cow that produces one calf a year. You're actually using that to improve the footprint. And I think those are the sorts of things. Uh, Jim Gibbs often talks about finishing for the sheep and beef industry, so improving fertility, you know, the number of lambs born per ewe or how quickly you finish your cattle, you know, so you're not having to carry them through a second winter, getting that autumn winter feed uh, growth rates up. Those can make a big difference in terms of the amount of greenhouse gas per kilogram of milk, solids or red meat. And I think that's the short-term focus our farmers can continue to work on and excel at because some of these other technologies which 
we're taking your money and investing in a few years away, but they do hold some promise. And I guess that's Harry's bread and butter working on some of those. One of the main things we're looking at is a vaccine that can, it affects the bugs that produce methane in the rumen. And the great thing about that, it would be applicable to every animal in every situation. And it would be highly practical because like most vaccines, you're not vaccinating every week or every day. You can vaccinate, you know, at different intervals. Technically very challenging, uh, but it's one we've invested heavily in because we see that it provides this opportunity right across the agricultural livestock sector. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point, Harry, because you can then use it in some of our extensive hill and high country systems. One of the other advantages the dairy industry has is a lot of the improvement is looking at elite sires that, for example, reduced lower emissions. And, you know, the sheep industry's led the charge there for various reasons in terms of that. But the advantage the dairy industry has is they use artificial insemination. So although the sheep industries are ahead, it'll take a long time for natural mating to get that gene through or that genotype spread through the, the national flock, whereas through artificial insemination, you could have that really rapidly deployed. So that's a big advantage the dairy industry has. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, this is a program I, I've been involved in since about 2005. So, you know, we started in sheep because it was practical. The measurement technology needed we had for sheep but didn't have for dairy cattle. So, and it, it's actually cheaper to do in sheep. So we started with sheep. We've now shown that you can select low emitting sheep. And that now is being partly rolled out by the, the industry, by Beef and Lamb New Zealand and, and Beef and Lamb Genetics. But we, you know, two years ago, we've now working with LIC and CRV Ambreed to develop a, a similar program in, in dairy cattle. As Warwick said, it, the ability to rapidly roll it out is very important. And also there are these very focused sire evaluation schemes in the dairy sector. And between those two companies I mentioned, they have around about 350 bulls on trial. And those 350 bulls, a selection of them, will sire a large proportion of the next generation of dairy cows. So if you can identify those bulls that produce low-emitting progeny, you have to measure less animals and, as Warwick said, with artificial insemination, you can uh, roll it out very quickly. So, you know, learning from what we did in, in the sheep, which did take more than a decade before we'd really made progress, I think we can make much greater progress in dairy now because of what we've learned in sheep. And, you know, we've had to put in a lot considerable investment into measurement equipment. But it's a very exciting prospect that, you know, we can breed low-emitting animals. And those low-emitting animals, are, it's not a, a massive difference, around about 10% between our high and low-emitting animals, but it can be applied right across the sector and it's open to improvement continuously like every breeding program is. So that's another, you know, one thing that we think will make quite a difference in the coming decades. We also sometimes keep focusing on emissions from an animal or emissions from a piece of land. But, you know, once you've produced your milk, it goes to a factory. It might be dried 
what is being used to dry it, if it's in the South Island, it might be coal. So there are opportunities to say, well, we will move away from coal. Uh, We can perhaps move to wood. We can move to electrified boilers. This will take some time. So there are opportunities right across the industry, not just the focus on what you can do at the farm gate. You need to think right across the process of how we get that product to market. I think it's important to recognise that the other sectors do have footprints. So although dairy takes the heat, you know, it's really important to recognise that you shouldn't let arable or horticultural off the hook. But they have opportunities as well. And, and for example, you know, the amount of time they spend in trucks and tractors. So can they, you know, will there be alternative fuels in the future, for example, uh, maybe one of the most useful ways they can contribute? If you think of your hothouse Productions, a lot of your winter vegetables you buy in the supermarket uh, are often grown through natural gas or fossil fuel heated glass houses. So they have challenges if consumers want those types of crops in the wintertime. And then the obvious one is the area we work in, which is uh, the footprint of nitrogen fertiliser. The biggest hope we have is to try and find a chemical, a nitrification inhibitor that stops the nitrous oxide. So lime and nitrogen fertiliser, I think Harry's about 3 to 6% of the greenhouse gas footprint. So, But it is manageable, and I guess we're investing a lot of effort to try and find a market-acceptable compound we can use that can eliminate that signature. And so because it's important that all sectors contribute to this national goal that we have. All right, Warwick, I've got a question for you. We spend a lot of time uh, creating our environmental plan, especially down here in Southland. Got a lot of issues down here. Farming for the future, how do our environmental plans uh, fit into our vision for the future of farmers? I think the important thing about a farm environment plan is that you don't want it to be something that sits at the bottom of the desk somewhere or and never looked at. And so for me, the a farm environment plan is more about short-term planning, thinking about achievable goals, but in an integrated way for the farm. As we mentioned, you know, you've got lots of balls to manage in terms of health and safety and environmental nitrogen leaching, greenhouse gases coming in. And I suppose in terms of the greenhouse gases, if I reflect on my experience around the Clean Streams Accord, you know, 15 years ago, the most important thing was getting farmers to understand, A, yes, they do leach nitrogen, B, how much and where does it come from, and therefore what can I do about it? And for me, this is a very similar journey for greenhouse gases, is understanding what is a greenhouse gas, where in my farm system does it come from, so if I'm a dairy farmer or a deer farmer or a or vegetable grower or arable crop farmer, understanding where they are and therefore what levers I can pull in terms of shaping that. And so I think the first phase of these farm environment plans is pretty much should be educational to understand what they are and therefore what they can do it because you don't want them pulling a single greenhouse gas lever. You want that to be done within a farm system context. Otherwise, we'll get pollution swapping or we'll get perverse outcomes. We need our primary sector to thrive. So that's what these farm environment plan journey will do. And essentially, the goal for the sector is by the end of 2022, I think 100% of all farmers should know their number. And then, correct me if I'm wrong, Harry, by 2024, 2025, they all should have a farm plan that includes that greenhouse gas management in it. 
So for me, that's what I see with these farm environment plans and hopefully, particularly given what's happening around freshwater quality stuff, pulling it all together in terms of a holistic conversation rather than here's one piece of paper about greenhouse gases, here's one about nitrogen leaching, here's about winter of feed, have it all together so it's you're not trying to juggle three balls, you just have one single thing to focus on. That's a good point there. I, you know, farmers are, are quick to be annoyed about uh, spending another two weeks inside their offices every single year now that we've you know, got a lot more uh, compliance, uh, that, you know, papers that we need to sort of try and get over the line. But I think, you know, by bringing it up and making it part of the conversation with the team on farm gives them a you know, far deeper understanding as to what they're doing and, and how they're affecting, you know, their waterways and greenhouse gas emissions. And, and I think, you know, it's making farmers, uh, young, especially young people coming into the industry, um, have a better understanding of everything, the, the, the holistic view and, and the 100-year vision for farming for the future. So it's exciting. It goes back to this key question about what can you do about it? And uh, you have farm staff. A lot of other farmers have farm staff. Actually, the most important thing is how well they look after the animals so they actually reach target live weights earlier, their reproductive performance is improved, Focusing on those basics will actually go a long way to improving our environmental footprint. It's not something to be demoralised. It's actually perhaps these environmental calls will mean we'll focus on our core business and efficiencies and doing the fundamentals better than we have in the past, which is what we've always done, carrying on that continuous improvement. What are some of the things that you're excited about, Harry? What excites you about what's coming up, mate? I mean, it'd be easy for me as a researcher to start talking about these nice research methods and things and all the new technologies. But I think the single biggest thing that's excited me is the change I've seen. You know, I was around when there was this fart tax debacle, really, you know, when farmers were protesting and whatever. And what we've seen is this journey that's gone from opposition to say, we're now embracing this. If I talk to farmer audience, the big questions now are, what can I do? I want to do something, what can I do? And then I'm also now moving on to the stages, farmers are sending me suggestions as to what they can do. And so what really excites me is that the sector has embraced this. The sector is massively innovative. And in actual fact, I think the excitement is the sector is now saying, we know we have to do something and we'll be part of that journey. And, you know, as a researcher, you're just one part of that journey. And I think it's needed the sector to become engaged. And I've seen that journey to getting it engaged. And I think it is a challenge. It's not easy. But now the sector wants to take on that challenge. I think we have a much better chance of meeting it. And that really excites me. I'm looking forward to the innovative ideas that come from farmers. I agree, Harry. My, my, what really excites me, um, one of my roles as, the, as a national judge for the Farm Environment Awards, so you go from the far north to the deep south, and what really excited me was almost without exception, they see greenhouse gases and as a potential competitive advantage for our primary sector. So uh, by doing it well and focusing on it, we can make our primary sector globally more competitive and position our products internationally in the marketplace. And, and for me, that's really where the opportunity is to flip it from something into an opportunity and say, actually, here's how we can position and grow our primary sector and, and grow our national wealth. Absolutely. Well, that's good that I know that now when I enter next year. 
Yeah, that's awesome, guys. Thank you so much for listening and joining in on the discussion. And special thanks go out to Warwick Caddo and Harry Clark for allowing me to pick your guys' brains. So don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. And tell all your mates. Catch you guys next time. Ciao, ciao.